Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hi, Mark Homer here. Welcome to Mark My Words. Well, today I've got David Kemp here, who has been on the show before. Um, he's a, a very experienced um, planning barrister, um, loads and loads of sort of cases that he's, he's dealt with. You maybe remember a number of months ago, we did uh, a podcast with David on various areas of sort of planning policy, um, little tweaks, sort of turns, things that uh, things that you can do to, to, to sort of navigate yourself around the planning system uh, and make, make the most money. So we've got some new topics to talk about. We've got some case law, um, some information that's just hot off the press. David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mark. Good to be here again. Thank you. So, David, you've um, you've got some sort of some changes here to national planning policy, um, specifically relating to sort of the density um, of development in town centres. Do you want to talk us through um, these changes and, and where the opportunities lie? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time, Mark, because um, there are some very big changes on the horizon. Uh, at a national level, and also for those who are looking at development in London, some of that is also echoed through the emerging London plan. They're on both uh, a slightly different timeline. Today I'm just going to focus on the national planning policy framework, which is the national level of policies. Uh, And just to put that in context, uh, whether or not you're dealing with a development in Shropshire, in Newcastle, in Norwich or in London, uh, or in Bristol, wherever you're dealing with in Uh, nationally, uh, it has to be consistent with national planning policy and take that into account. Uh, And therefore, what's going to happen at the national level and those changes at the national level will find their way down eventually to the regional and then to the local level. Uh, So there are some pretty big changes on the horizon uh, and most of it is to do with the government trying to find a way to balance its need for more housing development and greater housing delivery rates in the country as against uh, perhaps a a more protectionist agenda, looking after other interests in the planning system, such as rural communities, balancing that against the need for affordable housing delivery and so on and so forth. So uh, there's some uh, very big challenges, but also some great opportunities for developers if one looks closely at it. So there are some changes in terms of viability tests and yeah. wiggle room for developers uh, in the language, the assessment of the land value uh, and justification for the profit level which they, they would seek. That's right. Do you want to talk us through those? Yeah, so uh, in terms of uh, the affordable housing agenda, uh, the government is generally looking to move towards a system of greater certainty. Now, how it sees doing that is uh, looking for areas where it can cut down on negotiation opportunities for developers vis-a-vis affordable housing and local planning authorities. Uh, And on the other hand, look towards other fixed tariffs and community infrastructure infrastructure levy generally as well. Looking at viability testing and affordable housing first, many of your listeners where they're dealing with affordable housing negotiations will be used to a situation, say for instance, where the council may have a 40% or 50% target in their local plan policy. However, one can come forward with a proposal for even less or perhaps even in some cases no affordable housing whatsoever either on site or through a financial contribution. And that can be tested by way of a viability test with a local authority. Now, there is some change in the language here because in the current national planning policy, you can sort of see the way in which that is going to be moving when you look and compare that language with the new emerging national planning policy framework, which is a framework which is currently in draft it's on the consultation until, uh, until the 10th of May, and the government are looking to adopt the new policies sometime in the summer. 
So with that language, the current language talks about um, guaranteeing or providing developers with competitive returns to development. They're now talking about providing developers with minimum returns to development. So they're turn, toning down the extent to which developers can have a, an expectation of how much profit they can expect to make out of a scheme. That is also reflected in a whole host of appeal decisions that have been coming through recently from the planning inspector. So, so effectively, they're saying that uh, in order for a site to be viable, um, the sort of profit threshold that a developer should expect would be lower. Yes, should be lower. Yes, should be lower. That developers lower than twenty percent. No, not but not necessarily. It's a question in t of tone. Whereas competitive returns says that developers can afford to be quite bullish about it, and in the past they've been allowed to put in expectations of 20-25% profit on cost and test those through a viability model with the council mm -hmm. and probably been able to get away with it. And certainly been able to get away without, without explaining why in that particular case they needed a 20% level or a 25% level. However, there have been some appeal decisions where the appeals have been dismissed because the planning inspectorate looked very closely into the profit on cost that was claimed. And a headline figure of 20%, for instance, profit and cost, was, was claimed by the developer. And it wasn't justified. It wasn't justified in any way explicitly to the... It was, when I say it wasn't justified, it wasn't explained through the appeal papers why they were looking for that, that level of return. If they had done, the situation may have been different. But because they hadn't done, it was an Achilles heel to their case. And therefore, it was a basis on which the inspectors in those cases dismissed the appeal. So it's pretty much the inspectorate and the government saying, we're not going to give you carte blanche on these figures. They may be justifiable, but you need to be able to explain it to us and to justify them. Because of course, it's a public system. Their own decisions are open to scrutiny and to uh, inspection and examination as well. Uh, and I guess that also third parties, if they feel as if they're aggrieved by the decision, uh, they could challenge uh, a planning inspector's decision as well by judicial review. And this is sometimes in these cases, it's also the government being litigation minded and trying to insulate themselves by taking a harder line with how these things are examined at the planning in inquiry stage as well, the public uh, examination stage. So the language is changing to reflect that and those appeal decisions. Um, another thing which um, we were talking about earlier this afternoon about the assessment of land value. Now, when one does a viability appraisal, there are three main inputs. There's the land value, there's the build cost, or, or rather total development cost, because it would include professional fees and abnormals and externals as well. And there's, there's your development value as well, including marketing costs, agency fees, etc. Now, in terms of the assessment of land value, this is an important uh, factor because many developers have been putting in an, a land value in their appraisals, which has been inflating the total costs of the development. And therefore, if it's inflated to, to a certain degree, it may be that you can then pay a lot less in terms of affordable housing contribution, or perhaps even use it as a basis for not paying any affordable housing at all. And this happened in a recent case, which was uh, just decided by the High Court today, um, or sorry, rather a few days ago. Uh, and it involved a company called uh, Parkhurst Road Limited, which I should imagine is probably a special purpose vehicle. They bought uh, the Territorial Army site in Islington, and they entered into negotiations with the London Borough of Islington. Where there is a 50% affordable housing target. Correct, correct. Which, is, which mimics the Mayor's current 50% affordable housing target as well. And Islington are quite aggressive in terms of trying to ensure that there is 
a, a, a reasonable accountability in terms of affordable housing through the planning process. Now, there was some negotiation between the parties, I'm given un to understand by reading the abstract of the case. And it brought the parties a little bit closer, but not much closer, and certainly not close enough to close the deal between, between them. And the um, appellant, Parkhurst Road Limited, they offered 10% affordable housing. Islington came down to 34%, but there was still a massive bridge there. And so the application was refused for lack of sufficient affordable housing contribution. The, um, the appellant or the, the applicant, Parkhurst Road Limited, then appealed or sought to review that appeal decision from the planning inspectorate. So they took the planning inspectorate to, the, to court. Islington becomes a third party, a related party to the proceedings. And they argued that the inspectorate had erred in law by discounting the land value that Parkhurst Road Limited had put into their appraisals. Effectively, the inspectorate has said, you paid X amount for the site, that effectively is, there's not sufficient evidence that that was a reasonable amount to have paid for the site. Parkhurst Road Limited's, or well, let's call them PRL for short, PRL's answer to that was, hold on, it was fair, we think it was fair, we've looked at other transactions in the area, what people are paying for these sites, they're paying X amount per, per acre, we think it's a fair land value. We've looked at the market rate. Now that assessment of land value is what is called the pure market rate assessment. However, it is not the recommended approach through the RICS guidance note on viability appraisals or through the Mayor's housing supplementary guidance. The recommended approach is to take existing use value plus. Now the plus is a margin on top to reflect the potential for additional development. Now, you're probably going to ask me, or your listeners are probably going to wonder, well, David, what is that margin on top? It's whatever. My pragmatic answer would be it's whatever you reasonably think you can get away with and what makes sense with regards to what the respective parties appreciate about the potential for additional development. And that, of course, is going to... It's 10%. Going, it's going to be, could be 10%. Usually, value, conventional valuation practice is to put a 10% increase representing hope value, short of getting a planning permission, on the land. It might be a bit more, uh, might be a bit more generous than that if, for instance, the site is allocated for development. So there's a presumption in favour of bit being allocated, there may be a clear development brief which has been passed by the council as well. So generally, you're absolutely right, Mark, usually 10% could be more than that though. But from a pragmatic point of view, what tends to happen, and this is my own experience because in the past I've been a legal officer being involved in Section 106 negotiations at, uh, at London boroughs and at councils. I've seen how it works on the other side, how the negotiations work on this other side. If they're presented with a figure that globally they think makes sense and they can sell to their members as officers, then you don't tend to get into these arguments mm. about the value of, of land because officers have a heavy caseload and they've got far too much else to do other than to get into an argument for the sake so of it. So they sort of meet in the middle, agree they, a number, absolutely, and everyone moves absolutely, on. Absolutely, everyone, absolutely, everyone moves on. And if they're still a little bit uncomfortable about it, then you get on to this second bite provision, which we can come on to in a moment where... Well, they work out left, the actual cost work, and the yeah, actual profit It's later. left for another day. So, that, yeah. okay, you put in the development value as it is yeah. and all the sales prices at the moment. We think you can probably get more than that later. But when you've sold perhaps 80% of the units, then we'll come back to, the, to it. And if we can get a little bit of cream on top later on yeah. in the development, we'll do that. However, because there was such a large gulf in this case between PRL and between the council, then obviously the council is going to look into the detail to try to justify its position. Yeah. So that tends to happen in these planning negotiations. If you can generally strike on ballpark where the council want you to be, then 
officers are prepared to be pragmatic and save everyone a lot of time and pretty much let things go. And you get this with listed building negotiations as well, and I've mm. seen it in other areas as well. So this all came out in the wash because there was such a large gulf between the parties. And uh, strictly speaking, and this was endorsed by the High Court, the proper and approach to the assessment of land value is what's called existing use value plus. So example, at the moment, I've got a commercial building, it's retail, mm -hmm. um, you've got, you, who knows what the value of that site is, yes. uh, because there just isn't much retail demand above, mm -hmm. the, above the ground floor level. Lack of comparables, yeah. etc. difficult to value. So yeah. they may try and argue that actually the value of that land is very low, negligible, mm -hmm. but then maybe add 10% on to the negligible number mm -hmm. to, you know, for, for hope value. Yep. And then sort of introduce the land at that level for the purpose of the viability assessment and affordable housing contribution Absolutely. Um, calculation. Absolutely. And that could, that figure that you end up with by working it through in that way could actually be significantly less than you've ended up paying for it in the open market. Mm. So does this mean there's going to be some sort of, I don't know, special surveyor rolling around uh, telling developers what councils are likely to say sites are worth uh, for planning purposes or, or for sort of a, a affordable housing calculation purposes and yes therefore they shouldn't really be paying any more than that well it would be yes i mean normally what happens is for instance within um london boroughs if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap but you just don't know how to do it then building an airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for right now in the uk there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. It's usually dealt with by the valuation office. Uh, district in, valuer? Uh, it's normally known as the district valuer's office yeah. when you're outside London as well. Right. So uh, they will look through comparable evidence. Uh, they'll take, I think they'll probably look at, they tend to look at both the market-based approach, the pure market analysis, which is what PRL started off with. Yeah. And then also they will look at the existing use value. Um, and so you do have these negotiations as, bad, as to how far apart you are. Now we've just been, we just finished an affordable housing negotiation with Rushmore Borough Council before going with a planning application for 114 units. And there were differences between us in terms of how the land value was worked, but there was also differences between us in terms of how the building cost was worked as well. So if you iron out all these differences in the mix, then there are checks and balances. And sometimes you will find that what the approach that the district valuers office has taken to other inputs such as build costs is perhaps offset but but only partly by the approach that they've taken on land value so when you take all that into account from a practical point of view you don't actually find that there's all much diff all that much difference between the parties and also, one has to offset against that the fixed tariffs in the system as well. Now, I said earlier that the government is looking to endorse more fixed tariffs coming forward. So at the moment, we have a system, certainly in London, and on a growing basis outside of community infrastructure levies. 
And those are fixed tariffs. You can't negotiate on them where they're applicable. So, for instance, if you have to pay £20,000 or £200,000 community infrastructure levy, subject to offsetting what you provide in terms of affordable housing floor space or what you provide in terms of um, or what's on the site at the moment in terms of the existing floor space, and you use that as an offset, then what you pay on top of that will be a fixed amount and you can't negotiate on that. So obviously, it's part, as far as your planning costs, those go in your appraisal quite early on, and then you'll be negotiating or looking to negotiate your affordable housing figures around that. So in London, we have a two-tier system. We have the local community infrastructure levies, which cover things like schools, uh, local highway network, hospitals, etc. And then you have the structural infrastructure levy. They're both called SIL, confusingly enough. One's CIL and the other one's SIL. The structural infrastructure levy is also known as the mayor's levy. It's there to pay for Crossrail. Now, uh, we have been used to the only structural le in infrastructure levy out there being the mayor, London Mayor's Levy. However, there is going to be the power for regional bodies or structural authorities, county councils, as we know them, to develop their own system of structural infrastructure levies as well. So there may be additional cost, additional pain on development appraisals as well. And these are part of the challenges that developers are going to have to wrestle with in the future. Uh, we'll be speaking shortly about uh, another particular fixed levy called SANG and SAM payments in relation to special habitats. Uh, and those work in a very similar way to community infrastructure levies and sometimes actually just replace them in any event because it's all part of the infrastructure of the local authority. However, those are parts of the challenges that we face and developers will face going forward. And as with any new body of policy or legislation, it takes time to come through as well. It's also quite a hot time politically. You've got a lot of local elections coming forward uh, and taking place today. Today at the in moment. Peterborough. Absolutely. Yeah. And today in West Hampton is where I've just come from as well. So um, running up until this period, there has been a period of paralysis at political level, probably for the last three or four months what's called PERDA. Mm. Uh, and you will be aware of this on large schemes as well, that normally you can engage with officers who will give you a bit of help to give you a bit of a political insight and a bit of a political steer. And they'll be able to speak to their political masters on an informal basis and get an insight as to what's happening, what their priorities are. But then it gets to a stage where you get so close to election time, then people freeze and become very nervous about being too open, the, the, the local politicians that is, being too nervous, too open about what they can say to officers because they don't want to say something that is seen to encourage something that actually could be politically uncomfortable and fly back in their face when it comes to elections as well. And then you have a period after that, particularly if there is a change in political makeup, when the officers are, are having to get used to perhaps new political masters and understand new priorities, and then it all gets filtered through through high-level overview and scrutiny meetings and then filtered through, and it takes months and months for it to work its way out through it's the It's very system. interesting, David. Yeah. It, um, clearly, we've got wheels within wheels. Um, certainly, when looking at the planning committee, um, you're going to be going in front of uh, a number of people um, in order to, to, to get planning permission on a site. Yep. They're going to be driven by politics. They're going yep. to be thinking about what, you know, the elections that are coming up. Mm -hmm. How can we sort of prepare for a planning um, a planning committee session to, to make sure that, that, that planning consent is granted and, and we, you know, we end up making the money on the site? Uh, well, that's a really good question because there's actually there's a lot of people who don't, know how to prepare for a planning committee. And I've been in so, so many planning committees, not just on behalf of the developer or the applicant, but I've actually sat there as a legal officer next to the chair in many cases. Uh, and you see so many different levels of performance as well. And it makes a big difference to how it comes across to the committee. So I think one of the first things you have to think about 
is how do I get to planning committee? Will I end up there? Uh, and in, more importantly, leading on from that question, all those questions, can I save this from going to committee? Because usually it's in your client's best interest or in your best interest not to go to committee. Part, let me just step, take a step back from that for a moment before I explain why. We tend to have in this country two ways in which decisions can be taken, either by officers on their own or officers recommending a decision to their political masters, known as the planning committee, and it being decided by the planning committee. The first one, officers on their own, is what's called a delegated decision, under delegated powers. It's delegated because normally the decision is one for the planning committee, but the system would completely grind to a halt if absolutely every single application, such as minor applications and PD applications, came before committees every single time. They'd never get any decisions done. Quite a lot actually end up being left or deferred onto later committees, which causes a great deal of trouble to developers. We just had one the last few months with, with one client, which we finally got to committee this month. But with delegated decisions, you have a much lower risk of refusal because you know who you're dealing with. You've been building up a rapport, hopefully, with the officers as your application has been progressing. And if they're saying we're prepared to recommend approval, that's also with regards to the fact that there may be objections to the scheme. So if they can simply rubber stamp it and approve it, then you don't have to worry about objectors showing up, speaking to committee and making the members nervous as to whether or not they should be approving it. And I had a situation recently with a client where Southwark London Borough Council were going to take the matter to committee. Now, I questioned that. I said, it says in your rules, and those rules are, by the way, called what's called the Constitution, and within that Constitution, which is a published document on the, on the website, uh, there's it, a separate subset of document and rules called the Standing Orders, and they set out the situations within which an application can or should go to committee. Now, it so happened in this particular case that such was the level of objections and objections that were actually relevant to my client's proposal and what was proposed and the fact that the officers themselves were not required, if those triggers came about, to have to send it to committee. They had a discretion. And so I played on that with the officers and they agreed that it didn't have to go to committee. And so they've taken the decision under delegated powers and we've got approval that way. So it's helped to manage the client's risk. Reduces the, the risk, doesn't it? Yeah. In a big way, very, very big way. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, you, you've got sort of five top reasons to speak to the officer at the outset. Oh, absolutely, yes. It's very important to do that. Uh, it, it's often overlooked. Some people get the report um, prior to the uh, committee taking place. And the report, the officer's report, is usually published five working days before the committee. So you need to look out for that and usually be published on the council agenda pages. And if you're not quite sure about that uh, or how to find it, then you can, you can get in contact with either your planning officer, who should know where to find it or send you a copy of the report, or the governance officer. The governance officers, they are the ones who run the agenda. They compile the reports and the pages on that. And so you should be speaking to them at quite an early stage. Some councils do actually publish their officers' reports for the applications a lot sooner than that. And as soon as you get that report, if you're the developer or the developer's agent, you should lodge your speaker's rights straight away with the governance officers. That's just send them an email, copy in the, your case office and say, we wish to turn up on the on the night and we wish to speak on behalf of the application because if you don't lodge those rights in some cases you will not have a right to speak at the committee there is a date by which you have to lodge those rights and sometimes it's 24 hours beforehand sometimes it's two full work, two full working days beforehand sometimes it's other periods and it will vary from one council to another um, so the five top reasons to speak with the officer at the outset Number one, I would say 
it gives you an insight to the level of objection and risk. Uh, so you need to know who has objected and you're just feeling out the officer for their thoughts on it. It helps again to build rapport because you might need to work on revisions later on with those officers. It's quite often that you get consent, the scheme doesn't work for building regs reasons, you've got to go back uh, and you've got to make corrections uh, and some of those corrections might be relevant to things that the officer gave you a bit of a battle on in the first place. So always keep that rapport going because you'll never know when you're going to need them again. Um, important information is sometimes given in that such as what the council's priorities are. That helps to shape your speech. In this particular case where we represented our client in relation to a locally listed building in the conservation area, the report dealt with a number of issues which were raised by other parties. Now they included heritage impact, they included amenity impact, so privacy overlooking, they included transport and highways. Now most of the objections were about transport and highways impact, but don't always lead on the things in your speech that objectors think are important to them. You lead on the, on the things that your audience wants to hear. Your audience in this case is the planning committee members. And so who's going to know that audience better than anyone? It should be the case officer because they are usually in front of those members presenting every month. They're also in what's called a, pro it's, it's a private meeting that usually takes place just before the committee on the same night. That private meeting behind closed doors is between usually the head of development control or the presenting case officer, the legal officer, the governance officer, the chair of the planning committee and the vice chair of the planning committee. It's called callover. And nor normally almost every local authority has it. And what they do is they go through the agenda probably only about an hour or two before the actual hearing starts and they're giving their initial thoughts on how they might vote and the feedback from their other members and their constituency parties, uh, and also going through the running order and what the key issues are as well. So it's through those sorts of situations that the officers build up a level of intelligence about their own members and get to know them. And so ask them about it, say what are their priorities, and that helps you to lead with your best point. Good advocacy has a number of rules to it. And one of the best rules is what I was uh, taught is called best point theory. You always lead with your best point. And that'll be your point, which is also perhaps the most receptive to your, to your audience as well. So you need to do that. That will also help you to think about whether or not you need to lobby the members beforehand. Speak to the officers again. They know whether or not the members are receptive to lobbying. The, lobby, the, the members get collared every time they go into a supermarket by their constituents. They probably get a bit fed up with it. And if it ain't broke, sometimes don't fix it. You don't need to start making points where you feel you've already got the members or the officers have told you you've all probably pretty much all got the members won over. A good officer will usually tell you whether or not they've spoken to one of the members beforehand, particularly, say, a ward councillor, and the feedback they got from them. In this particular case, our officer said to him, well, I spoke to so-and-so, and I spoke to this one and that one, and you know what, they were fairly okay about it. And actually, they're more concerned about other items that are coming up that evening and other applications. So those are four reasons. Another, another reason is procedure and timing. It's always different from one local authority to another. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach in terms of procedure and timing, in terms of how every local authority runs its business. And a lot of this is in terms of making yourself feel comfortable with the process, ready on the evening, knowing what's coming next as well. Uh, and then that, that leads on to the evening of the committee itself. And one of the most important people you'll speak to in the room when you first go into the room is the governance officer, because they can tell you what the procedure is that evening, when you're going to be up, um, when you're going to speak, um, particularly if objectors are going first, you know to be ready to record uh, in writing what the objectors are saying, just in case it's going to be relevant to a following appeal. 
Really interesting, David. Uh, I know there's a lot of value in there because, you know, the planning committee often is where things that, you know, people are made or broken because of, you know, the huge profit or, mm. or potential losses yeah. um, when when buying sort of land or buildings. So it's a huge thing. I know people who make big money in central London who just sit in planning committees watching other people's applications yeah. just to work out how these things work. Um, so SANG and Habitats Directive, um, this is a big thing. You've had a site recently where you've, you're having to make a big payment. Um, several hundred thousand pounds. What is SANG and, and why do we have it? SANG stands for Sites of Alternative Natural Green Space. It comes initially from the Habitats Directive from the EC. Now, before everybody starts switching off thinking, well, Brexit is Brexit and it'll be a hope, it might be a hard Brexit and therefore we're going to sweep away all this European legislation so it's not relevant to me. It may be because it's like a whole other part of the body of protectionist legislation. There is no promise that that is going to be swept away. It is there to conserve other local interests. It would be that those local interests also have a part to play in whether or not parties get voted back in for power. And the political imperative or the risk of to a political party of sweeping away a whole load of protectionist legislation mm -hmm. Is probably just too great, particularly where the parties sit at the moment at the national level and the risks in doing that. And quite frankly, also, sometimes they've got bigger fish to fry rather than having to go through all of that and examine it and pull out the bones in it. So I think we have to assume it's here to stay. The whole point is that in some parts of England, and I've come across it in particular in the southeast, but that's not to say it's not any, anywhere else in some other similar shape or form, but it's there in relation to natural heathland or upland. And there is evidence, and one can always question the evidence, but I'm just saying where it comes from, not whether or not we, we should have it. But there is evidence from bodies like Natural England that uh, protected species, flora and fauna, are endangered by people using the natural heathland or upland too much for recreational activities, dog walking, dogs being taken off leashes and so on and so forth. So from that point of view, the fix that the system has tried to come, on is, come to is saying instead of people taking their leisure, ex, uh, leisure and exercise and their dogs for a walk up on the heathland or upland, they should be provided with an alternative natural green space, which meets certain criteria, is of a certain size, and serves a, a catchment area, usually within a, a radius of about five kilometers. Natural England seems to think that if you're, if you're outside five kilometers, you're much less likely to use those areas. So they are large, open, natural green spaces. And in order to provide them, there is a cost involved to the local authorities who provide them, usually for paying the landowner, uh, and that aspect of the payment is what's called the SANG payment, Sites of Alternative Natural Green Space. And then there's a supplemental payment that's usually on top of that for the maintenance and management of those uh, green spaces, which is called a SAM payment, S-A-M-M, -M, uh, which is, as I say, to do with maintenance and management. And they can be considerable amounts as well. We're... Uh, working on a development for 114 units in Farnborough. Uh, we're a few weeks away from submitting it formally. We've been through a very lengthy pre-application process with the council. And interestingly enough, this is an office development. This is an office to residential. So this is prior approval, this is PD. But yes, but we're not allowed, or we're, not that we're not allowed to do it under PD, but the way in which it's run in Rushmore Borough Council is that you end up actually having to do a full planning application. So PD doesn't apply on offices in, in Rushmore? Well, it doesn't apply from a practical point of view. It still applies from a legal point of view. Mm. So that the council there have just sort of made an arbitrary yeah. decision not to accept them? Let me work you through the logic on, on this, because I think it's a very important for the listeners to be able to understand this, because you would think to yourself, well, PD, permitted development, is national law. It is law. 
and therefore why should local authorities seek to exclude themselves from legal provisions? The law doesn't allow local authorities to exclude permitted development from their areas. You can still obtain permitted development, you can still apply for permitted development in Rushmore, in Surrey Heath Borough Council, in other areas affected by what's called the Thames Basin Special Heath uh, Special Protection Area. However, once you've got your permitted development, you might not then be able to implement it. Now, if an application for PD goes into Rushmore, what happens is that they are legally obliged to take into account what's called the Conservation of Habitats and Species Regulations. That is a child of the Habitats Directive. And in taking that reg those, those body of regulations into account and having, with re having regard to the impact on, uh, on what we call the SPA, the Special Protection Area, they are able to decide how they're going to adjust their local requirements in order to meet that. Now, that doesn't mean that they cannot accept and they do not validate permitted development applications at all or prior approval applications at all. They have to accept them. However, they have a discretion to as to how they approach the planning aspects of it within the prior approval area so that they might then say okay it meets the traffic contamination flood risk and highways uh, sorry traffic flood risk contamination and noise aspects of prior approval this is taking office to residential as an example that's fine you can have prior approval you're allowed a change of use however you can't occupy it and implement it because once it's in use, it's going to have an impact on the SPA. And there is therefore, that's when this parallel body of habitats regulations comes into effect, comes into force. And it's not that the law, it's not that that's going against the law, the law actually allows it. This is actually written into the General Permitted Development Order. This particular regulation is written into, the, in, into that area. So it's it restricts not whether or not they can grant permitted development or prior approval, it restricts the implementation afterwards. Now they all manage this in a slightly different way. Rushmore basically say, well, you can apply, but whether or not you can implement it afterwards, we're going to impose restrictions on it and you can only implement it if it meets nationally described standards, if it meets all this other stuff. Now, which means, which means effectively you apply for planning permission. Yeah. That may okay. seem an abuse of the process yeah. to some, but go that's argue with City Hall. That yeah. is the, that's reality. Yeah. So, you know, Sang and Sam, what are the possibility of sort of impacting the affordable housing payment, you know, due to these, um, due to these, um, due to Sang or Sam? Yeah, well, they're, they're fixed tariffs. They work in very much the same way as SIL, uh, the Community Infrastructure Levy. Uh, and because of the character of these areas, I'm not saying that affordable housing is not a big priority in any area, but um, these aspects are particularly unique politically to these particular areas. And therefore, the approach they take to it is we are not negotiating on these payments. If through the formula that we have in our supplementary planning documents, if it says you've got to pay £250 for SANG plus another £150 for SAM per one bedroom unit, you multiply that, you end up with a figure of £300,000, £400,000 you've got to pay. That's what you've got to pay. You can't negotiate that in. So that works in terms of process, in terms of thought process and viability process, in much the same way that a SIL payment would do. Now, a lot of these local authorities, and we looked at Farnborough on this, they don't have SIL. They decided not to have SIL because effectively SANG was so it was such a large amount imposed on developers, it would be putting too much of a burden on yeah, them. So they course. decided not to charge SIL. But then it also means that Although you can't negotiate on that because it's a fixed tariff payment, 
you can still negotiate on affordable housing. Mm, interesting. So new sort of permitted development rights, new sort of little wheezes that we can use, yep. a bit of chutzpah, you know, for, 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 for sort of getting consents through. Yep. Is, is there anything that we can utilise? Well, we've been focusing up until now on some of the challenges and some of your listeners might be thinking some of the bad news in relation to yeah, affordable so what housing. Is the good news? Some, but so the good news is there is some stuff going through. So there's, there's, there was good news and there was bad news in the NPPF. So the, the good news is that you should be looking towards town centre sites. There are some opportunities in rural areas. I'll come into those in a moment. Uh, but Greenbelt has still hit hard. The agenda is very much anti-development in the Greenbelt. Uh, although that's not to say that you shouldn't be looking at Greenbelt sites where there's an opportunity at all. My advice would be if you've got built development on the Greenbelt, particularly if they are B1 or you often get B8 sheds there as well, although they're limited in terms of size at this point in time, or B1C light industrial. Again, limited in terms of size, but also in terms of the period for which they're available. Where you, you've got built development on the site, it's useful in the green belt in two respects. First of all, it counts as previously developed land. So it creates an opportunity for further development to replace that. You're usually replacing something that is a high commuting, high transport volume use, something that's relatively low transport volume, more sustainable, fits in better with the area, looks better. Visually, visual impact on the green belt is much lower. Uh, and this is be the case whether or not you've got PD rights for those buildings. It's a great if you've got PD rights for them in any event, uh, but... Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a step in the right direction uh, if you've got that built development on there. It's the same in rural areas if you're either in a village settlement and there's a possibility for infill development. And we're talking probably about two, three houses in a terrace row itself rather than infilling into the backland. So it's in terms of how it's read in the street scene and the character, you're talking about gaps, breaks, visual breaks in the townscape. Uh, the, the government is also concerned that there's too much density sometimes in rural areas and it harms the character of some rural areas. So local authorities have traditionally said you can only develop within the marked village boundary, for instance. Well, interestingly enough, the NPPF is saying, well, actually, we want to encourage more development outside the village boundary if they're at least in sustainable locations refer back to what I said earlier about built development on particular sites. So you're kind of looking for a, a really nasty and smelly chicken poultry farm uh, on a site with high traffic movements and you can get rid of all that and you can get rid of the smells and you can replace the buildings with a, a nice small development of maybe two, oh, three, four houses. Oh, I see, outside of the village boundary. Outside of the village boundary. But, but it's a brownfield site. So, so that's the point. Yes. So brownfield sites outside of the village boundary yes. are now to be supported uh, in the MPPF. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, There's and there's a lot of those. Actually, I've got a mate who's a chicken farmer and he, he, um, he, <laughs> he, um, he processes eggs. Uh, and he's got loads of those, so I'll be having a chat with him uh, this <laughs> afternoon. Um, that's very interesting. In the town centre, where it's going at the moment is going to be going towards high-rise. It's yeah. going to be high-density development. At the moment, there is an emerging MPPF policy saying that where you've got uneven building heights, say, for instance, you've got a four-storey building, two-storey building, six-storey building, then the two-storey building could potentially go higher. Is an, uh, still requires planning permission. That still requires planning permission but, uh, at the moment, uh, but in any event, the government is expressly encouraging through the policy that the local authority should take a flexible approach mm. to sunlight and daylight standards yeah. in those sorts of cases. Now, the sunlight and daylight guidance itself has various wheezes and flexibilities there, for instance, in, in relation to mirroring development next door and the height of development next door. Um, infill development like this, where you're talking about infilling the height and building into air rights, is a slightly different kettle of yeah, fish. Yeah, of course. But at the moment, it's voiced uh, through policy. But the government has already mooted on several occasions, in, even in, in fact through the introduction 
to the emerging MPPF, but they're looking at ways of bringing in a permitted development right to cover that as well. It'll be interesting to see how that's worded and what conditions there are on it as well. But that's, that's another thing. And of course, developing in or near public transport hubs, there's a massive opportunity there. Uh, and for those who perhaps have deeper pockets and are a little braver, um, if you have a site which you've got permitted development on for offices to resi, and you're near a transport hub, and you've already encountered a local authority who is not the, the greatest fan of permitted development because of the small unit sizes, uh, then you might be able to say, well, we could do away with much of the parking areas here. We could almost have complete site coverage. Uh, and if you give us another couple of uh, floors on top, then we could go for a huge number of extra flats here mm. um, and of course we might be able to offer you some affordable housing as well and I know that we've spoke before about affordable housing it's not all bad news on that there are opportunities there to shortcut through the process and it may also mean that you're not subject to those second bite provisions and that is where you just say to the council you know what you'll get 35% or 30% affordable housing contribution here up front, just so long as you then don't start looking into our viability assessments about it or coming back to us for a second bite provision. Interesting. Mm. I've learned a lot, as usual, David. Um, thank you. How do people get in contact with you if they want to learn more or use your services to promote their their planning application. You can find me on Facebook, David Kemp, uh, but also my email address is david at drkplanning.co.uk. That's david at drkplanning.co.uk. Drop me an email. And we, uh, I usually get back to people uh, pretty quickly, certainly within half a day or so. I know. I, I only recommended someone uh, your services to someone this morning. Uh, and I think you guys have spoken already, so yeah, that's, um, that's that's really good, David. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been great. I appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, I hope you've all got good value from from David Kemp. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. That's Mark Homer for Mark My Words over and out. Mm -hmm.